the world, divided as it is, nevertheless craves unity, solidarity. Men cannot live without it. But we have a way, humans do, of seeking unity which actually ends up papering over all the real differences that exist between people. Thus, for instance, we have the United Nations. An oxymoron, if ever there was one. We have the European Union, a purely political unity which largely masks all the underlying diversity of the member states. And more notoriously, there was the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, a union which broke apart as soon as the forces of terror which held it together collapsed. But church union schemes have fared no better. The World Council of Churches, you remember that? The National Council of Churches, conceived with these grand schemes of worldwide unity, they all now lie in tatters. In most cases, because they've become the instruments of a purely political agenda. We have the claim of the Roman Catholic Church to be united around the Bishop of Rome. But here we have only an apparent unity. Get any 100 Catholics together, or better, better, get 100 Catholic priests and bishops together. Make sure you include the Bishop of Seattle and the Bishop of Milwaukee. And you'll have more disagreements and confusion than in any convention of Protestants. Unity is very difficult to attain across organizations, across cultures, across states. And the unity which God, through the Apostle Paul, is aiming at in the fourth chapter of Ephesians is no sham unity. It's no purely structural organizational unity. It's a unity which celebrates and is made visible, ironically, in our diversity. So this morning, from our Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16, we will make two points. Two points, gifts and maturity. Gifts and maturity. So first, our unity exists in and our unity is nourished by a diversity of gifts. Look at the text. Paul begins in verse 7 by saying that to each one of us, grace has been given. Right? There's a shift here from last week where the emphasis in the refrain was one, 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 one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. One God and Father. Now the emphasis is to each one of us. So Paul moves, if you will, from unity to the diversity which expresses that unity. The unity of the body of Christ is a rich, complex unity. Since each one of us has received a gift of God's grace. And that grace comes to us, we can see this at the end of verse 7, as Christ Himself has 
portioned it out or apportioned it. And so this means that the ascended Jesus, raised and ascended, empowered with the Spirit, has poured that Spirit out and He's allotted, He's measured out precisely our gifts. And He's done this for every member. Each and every member of His body. And that means that every one of you, right, each man, woman, and child sitting here this morning has received grace from the exalted Lord. And each is called to deploy it in the service of the church's unity. And this means that you, you are critical to the living unity of this community. We need one another desperately because no one has a monopoly on the spiritual gifts. There's no self-sufficiency here. The gifts have been lavished on the whole church, each one. There are no islands in the body of Christ. There is no rugged American individualism. The gifts are given to us by the bounty of the ascended Lord. And this leads Paul, in verse 8, to, to quote from Psalm 68. He says, when he ascended on high, <coughs> he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. Psalm 68 tells the story, the story of the God of Israel, Yahweh's victorious march from Mount Sinai through the wilderness, fondly to his enthronement on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And Paul sees all this as a picture of Christ's triumphant ascension. Christ is Yahweh incarnate. He triumphs over. He takes captive all the evil principalities and powers. And then He receives the fullness of the Spirit and He pours it out on you. He pours it out on His body. And so the text here roots all ministry, all of it, whether it's public, whether it's private, whether it's mundane and boring or whether it's more spectacular. It roots everything in these ascension gifts from Christ. Right? The ministry in the church is not based first and foremost on natural aptitudes or business acumen or any other model. It's based on the gifts that are poured out through the Spirit by the ascended Christ. And this mention of the ascension leads Paul to a sort of a digression in the text in verses 9 and 10. The ascension, he says, implies a prior descent. A descent into what he calls the lower parts of the earth. And that's just a, a fancy, long way of saying the earth. There's no reference here to Christ descending into hell. Paul is alluding to Christ's incarnation and His life and His death. And in verse 10, the one who descends in humiliation has now ascended in glory far above the heavens, the text says, in order that he might fill all things with himself. This is what Jesus is now doing. He's filling everything with his presence. And especially in this context, it means he's filling up the church with his grace. Paul expands on this this liberality of grace in verse 11. And here he narrows the focus from each one of us to some specific gifts, some gifted persons 
given by Christ to the church. So it's important to see we have a unified priesthood. We're all priests. We're all united. But it's a diverse unity. Some have public leadership functions. Some are marked off here as priests with a particular calling. So Paul says he gave some to be apostles. right? Not, not everyone's an apostle. And some to be prophets. Prophets here are, are not Old Testament prophets. They're New Testament prophets because they're the gifts of the ascended Jesus. Prophets and apostles are once for all foundational ministries, which in the very nature of the case cannot continue today. We are built on top of the foundation. You don't lay the foundation twice. No more apostles, no more prophets. And we manifest the fact that we're built on this foundation by clinging, listening to the apostolic witness in the New Testament. Then Paul mentions some gifted persons who continue in the church. Evangelists. Those called and especially gifted to proclaim the gospel to the lost and thus expand the church. He mentions pastors and teachers which are grouped together here. Probably as one officer function. Shepherds need to feed the flock and those who teach need to shepherd the flock into the truth. Now, what I want us to notice about all four or five, depending on how you count, of these offices, they're all concerned with speaking or ministering the Word. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, all ministries of the Word in one form or another. There's no growth in the church apart from the Word of God being proclaimed, ministered, and lived among us. So in verse 12, we can see that God gave these gifts to enable the growth of the church. The gifts, the gifts are never ends in themselves. They belong to the body. Your gifts and talents are not your private property. This is very difficult for Americans. Right? We are communists when it comes to spiritual gifts. They belong to the community. You do not have sovereign authority over them. You cannot choose whether you'd like to dispose of it or not, or use it or not. It isn't your decision to make. The gifts are the property of the body of Christ. They belong to the communion of saints. And these public ministries are to equip the saints, Paul says, for the work of service. The church is not a monopoly. It's not a pyramid where all ministry flows from the pastor or the elders. Thank God for that. The, the teaching ministry of the church in this text is to equip the saints so that they, notice the text, so that they can engage in the work of the church's ministry. We're not trying to create some self-sustaining organism here for the ministry. The ministry exists to equip the saints so the saints can serve one another and the gospel in the world. The end of this equipping of the saints 
the text says, is that they could edify, build up the body of Christ. So ed edification is a building metaphor. It's a construction metaphor. It means to strengthen and to expand the church. So that all we do in our service is to build up, to nurture, to heal. And there's to be zero unemployment in spiritual gifts. Every last gift from every last one of us needs to be deployed for the sake of the church which Jesus has purchased with His blood. There are no superfluous gifts. Find yours and use it. That's gifts. The second point is ministry. Uh, maturity, excuse me, maturity. So beginning in verse 13, the goal of this equipped and gifted body is to grow in maturity into Christ. Paul says, we edify the body until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity here is an attainment. Last week we saw that unity was a gift. There's a certain basic unity the church possesses in the Spirit as the gift of God. But here we see that we also need to strive to attain to the full unity of the faith. And here we're not talking about, when Paul speaks of coming to the knowledge of the Son of God, we're not talking about a bare or a minimal knowledge of Christ. Right? The language here implies a full, a mature, an actual exact or precise knowledge of Him of His plans, of His design for the church. A knowledge of the Son of God which is so complete and full that when the church attains to this knowledge, she's called here in the middle of verse 13, mature, that is a perfect man. One perfect, mature, fully grown, corporate man. That's the whole goal of the book of Ephesians. The unified body of Christ in all of her maturity and splendor in the earth. And Paul goes on to even say that the church then becomes the fullness of Jesus Christ Himself. Now think of this. It is good to set this goal like a kind of mirror before ourselves individually and collectively. Look at Jesus Christ. See Him in His risen and ascended glory, in His perfected and transfigured humanity, endowed with the fullness of the Spirit. He's the one who possesses in His own person the fullness of the offices of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. And we are called as His body to grow up into, to labor, to struggle, to mature into the fullness of that stature. Have you ever seen a, a baby whose head is way too big for its body? Right? It seems odd and maybe a little strange. But the body, immature as it is and all out of proportion, is still organically connected to the head. And where the right environment of, of healthy nurture is provided, the child will grow up into the right proportions. So it is to be with the body of Christ. Christ Himself, in the fullness of His stature, is the goal. Then, the goal of maturity is stated negatively in verse 14. Negatively. We should no longer be infants. 
Right? We're not content to live out of proportion to Christ. We're not to be carried, the text says, as immature people are, back and forth, to and fro, with every wind of doctrine. Paul, Paul is well aware of the myriad of, of novel, bizarre, and often appealing doctrines that blow through the church. And he warns us not to be seduced by what he calls here, in rather unflattering fashion, the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Bright, bright lights attract big bugs. And Jesus is a very, very bright light. So the church has always attracted weirdos. That's, that's a technical theological term. It has always attracted deceitful crackpot teachers. Bright lights attract big bugs. You know, I, had a, I had a professor in seminary taught us uh, hermeneutics, which is the, 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 uh, the theory, the science of interpreting the Bible. How do you interpret the Bible? And on the last day of his class, he comes into the class and he says, all right, you all sit here, I'll be back in a couple minutes. He goes away, apparently to his office. He comes back with this big manila envelope crammed full of papers, like this was before computers were really pervasive, right? He slaps, he slaps the, the manila envelope down on his desk in front of the class, and he says, do you know what this is? We don't, we don't know what that is. He says, this is my crackpot file. And he starts to take the articles out and read them. This Christian preacher predicting the end of the world. That Christian preacher mangling this text in public. This Christian preacher making another false prophecy. One bizarre, idiotic, inane uh, embarrassment for the Christian church after the other. He says, we, we study hermeneutics here in this class so that I can keep you out of my crackpot file. I don't want any of my students in my crackpot file. None of you should end up in anyone's crackpot file. It's the, it's the ordained ministry and the edifying array of all the ministers of the church which inoculate us against the destructiveness and the seduction of false teaching. I'll tell you, you find yourself someone isolated or alienated from the life of the public worship of God in the church and you will find someone who is idiosyncratic at best, and a crackpot at worst in many cases. So in contrast to false teachers, we're called in verse 15 to speak the truth in love. Just as the, the ascended gifts are about speaking the word, here the text focuses on what we speak to one another. The, the whole health, I would say, the whole health of, of a congregation can be gauged by the tone of our speech to one another. Right? We are to speak the truth, but we're to speak it in love. Truth without love, there are many people who can speak the truth, but it becomes inhuman or destructive. And love without truth is, is mere sentiments. Truth in love is the motto. And this way, the text says, we'll grow up. We'll become like this mature head. 
Nothing which is in Jesus Christ, nothing which is in the head is to be excluded from the body. Full maturity is in view. And finally, we're told in verse 16 that Christ, who holds all things together, causes the body to grow through every supporting ligament as each one, each member does its part. Every one of us, every joint and ligament supplies the body with what it needs to be effectively working to grow. The church, in this sense, is the most democratic institution in the history of the world. The most empowering institution for men, women, young, old, regardless of class or race or gender. Every single joint and ligament is needed. When I was in Tennessee, I was sometimes asked what I missed about New York. And one thing I missed, oddly enough, was uh, the radio in my car. The radio in a small market like I was in in West Tennessee emits terrible sounds. <laughs> they have terrible shows with terrible hosts. I would go home and I would say to Cheryl, I think, how, did, how does this guy have a radio show? But New York, you know, when you're used to living in the New York City media market, it has the best array of radio stations in the world. And they have the best sports talk radio anywhere. They have here the first all-sports talk station, which at the time I thought was crazy. I thought, that's ridiculous. That'll never catch on. Now every city in America seems to have four of them. Right? In any event, there used to be, I don't know if this guy's still out there, there used to be a famous caller up here who would call into this sports talk radio station. He was known to us listeners simply as Jerome from the Bronx. It's Jerome from the Bronx. What do you want, Jerome? He was a rabid Yankees fan and a, quite an excitable character. It didn't matter that the Yankees had spent $200 million on their payroll and that they won 110 or 115 games a year. Jerome was never satisfied. Jerome always felt as if things were completely falling apart as if somehow Western civilization was about to unravel because the Yankees' bullpen had a bad night last night. And if some Yankee had a bad game or two, Jerome would call in, and he invariably wanted to know why they didn't go out and buy so-and-so. And the host would say, Jerome, who, who do you want them to get? Who, do you, who should they get? And Jerome would always name, always name, the best player in baseball at that position. And it became something of a running joke that Jerome wanted the Yankees to have nothing but the 25 best players in baseball, period. He wanted 25 superstars, literally. He was quite serious about this, by the way. Even though he was a, a caricature, you know, he didn't know he was a caricature. No role players for Jerome from the Bronx. No utility infielders. Well, there are no, you can invert this, there are no superstars in the body of Christ. None. Not R.C. Sproul. Not Tim Keller. 
Right? Not all these names that evangelical Christians drop in hushed tones. Not your favorite conference speaker. There are no superstars. There are only role players in the body of Christ. That's all there is. Joints, ligaments, you, me. Each with a humble yet dignified and indispensable role to play in building one another up in love. And so if by grace, the grace of the gift we've been given, we play our role, then we will, unlike the Yankees, by the way, of the last few years, we will reach our goal. One fully mature corporate man May God grant that we take our place, deploy our gifts, and serve this body in truth and love. Amen.